0: You know, I can't see the clock in the back, and I'm known to run over. (laughs) They say a good sermon is like baloney, where you can cut it off anywhere. (laughs) And what I want to talk to you about tonight has to do with positional truths, which I'll explain what they are. The moment you get saved, there's at least 50 things that happen. I can't get through all 50 of them. But I can give you a couple examples when we get there and you'll get the point. So whether I go through three of them or five of them or six of them, when it's time, I'll cut the baloney off (laughs) and it'll be fine. Let's pray. Lord, I asked for your help tonight because I felt like I needed it and I'm not sure if you've pushed the help button yet (laughs) you know how emotional I can get and in that first song I almost lost how many times have I thought you said you are my friends I can barely get through that Tonight I pray that you will show the people how to live an abundant life. How to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to behold wondrous things out of your word tonight. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll pardon me if I quote certain things because I can't see anything. Everything waves and I'm, I'm going blind. There's a four-year-old boy on a third story of a building that was on fire raging in flames. Nobody could get to him. He couldn't get out. He was trapped. The men down below said, jump. We'll catch you. But he didn't believe them. Firemen are supposed to be your friend. They had a net. Jump. Trust us. You'll be okay. Jump. He wouldn't do it. But then his father hurried around the corner, corner. He looked up and he said, son, <clears throat> jump. And he jumped. <clears throat> he trusted his father. He believed in his father. You wonder what that has to do with Exodus. It has a lot to do with Exodus. Exodus didn't believe God. They didn't believe what God said. They didn't enter the promised land. It's interesting if you look in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, it talks about this wilderness experience. It talks a couple times about how they didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. And then it talks, over 10 times it mentions the word rest. That promised land was supposed to be a rest. There are three rests in the Bible if you don't count when God rested during creation. The land of Canaan was supposed to be a rest for Israel, but they didn't go in. But there's also a present rest that we have for us today that should be really meaningful to you. And then there's an eternal rest in heaven. The rest is for today. Jesus said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. He wasn't inviting people to his house for a nap. (laughs) It was a rest from their labor, from their working, from their trying. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. Many Christians are constantly trying to get what they already have, and they don't know it. And we're going to talk about that tonight. You can read the history of Israel kind of summarized in Psalm 78 and uh, there's a lot of verses there so we can't go through that. Even Hebrews 3 and 4, there's too many verses for us to go through. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 it talks about Israel. How that they all passed through the cloud and the sea with Moses and they were all baptized unto Moses. But then in verse 6 it says, Now, all these things happened unto them for examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, even as they did. Now, the word example there is the Greek word tupos, which stands for type. In other words, Israel is a type of the believer. Israel and everything they went through is a type of the believer. You can see yourself all through the Old Testament by watching Israel. And then in verse 11, just in case you didn't get it he says it again. Now all these things happen up to them for examples, for types. And he talks about people upon whom the end of the age comes, which is us. It reaches clear down to us. It wasn't just for Israel it's for us. Now if you don't know what a type is, I'll give you the simplest example. Uh, Abraham offered his Miraculously born son, Isaac. You all know the story. Well, Abraham is a type, a picture of God the Father offering his son. Isaac is a picture of the son. And so one is the type, one is the anti-type. Prophecy is a a type. And type is a form of prophecy. So you know what a type is. Okay. So Israel is a type of the believer. Now you'll see parallels between the two. So I want to start with Israel. I'm going to say this is the this Egypt over here. This is the Red Sea. You won't like this. This is the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Jordan River and my wife I mean these people are in Canaan. <laughs> yeah, thanks, God. <laughs> so, Israel was in Egyptian bondage, slaves. And they cried by reason of their taskmasters, and God heard them, and He delivered them, delivered them out of Egypt. He delivered them out of Egypt under the blood of the paschal lamb. Out of Egypt, unto the blood, by their deliverer, Moses. All of their enemies were defeated. Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. It said they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then they went into the wilderness and they were supposed to go up into the land of Canaan. A land that flows with milk and honey. The promised land a land of bounty, and it's called a rest. They were supposed to go there and have a rest. God was going to fight their battles for them. Everything was going to be fine. But they didn't go into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. They didn't believe what God said. And that's what I'm talking about tonight, believing what God said. Not believing that he exists, not believing that you're saved, believing in what he says. And more than just believing it, appropriating it to yourself, where it's so much a part of you, it can't be separated. I can never think of a good example of appropriation. The closest I could come is when Jesus said something about, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, where you're a part of him, an inseparable part. And I want you to have faith in God and trust in God in that way. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. They didn't enter in because of unbelief. They didn't get the rest. Now, when Israel got to the wilderness, they were awful. You read the things in the scripture, they did everything wrong. They murmured, they complained, they rebelled against their leaders. They said, "Would you bring us out here in the desert for, to die? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? We want the leeks and the onions and the garlics of Egypt. They wanted to turn around and go back. I like that song that says shall I go back into the world? Oh no, not I. Not I. Shall I go back into the world? Oh no. (laughs) They didn't keep Dawes' covenants. They lusted. They made idols. They did everything wrong. Israel in the wilderness. Now Do you think they had life abundant? Do you think they had joy unspeakable? Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have life more abundant. And the Bible talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory. Trust me, in the wilderness, there was not abundant life. It was not joy unspeakable. And a lot of Christians are in that wilderness. And then they go up to Canaan, but they didn't go in because of unbelief. Okay. That's kind of what Israel did, and you know that because Brandon's been teaching it. But all these things happen unto them for examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. They're, they're a type of us. Israel was delivered out of Egypt under the blood by their deliverer. Moses, all their enemies were defeated, and they went on to the wilderness, Canaan, and like that. The Christian life parallels it. We're delivered out of the world, under the blood, by our deliverer, Christ. The enemies were defeated, Satan and all of his cohorts. We're baptized unto Jesus, as a baptism of identification, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. And then we get into the wilderness on our way to Canaan. Now, the wilderness was necessary, but the wandering wasn't. They had to go through the wilderness to get to Canaan. But it's a real quick journey, just a few days' journey. But they were in that wilderness 40 years roaming around, doing the wrong thing because of unbelief. Now, a lot of Christians are in this wilderness. I'm afraid a lot of them are in the wilderness they're not in Canaan. It's really a picture of carnality of Christians in the wilderness. I'll tell you what Canaan represents in a minute. But in this wilderness, I think of the first Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church. They had every problem in the world. They weren't spiritual at all. Paul said, I cannot even speak to you as spiritual, whereas there is ending and strife and division among you. One of you say I'm of Paul, another says I'm of Cephas, another says I'm of Apollos. You know, you real holy ones say, well, I'm of Jesus. He said, I couldn't even speak to you as spiritual but as carnal, whereas there is ending and strife and division among you. They had divisions among them and strife. They sued each other in court. They were having sexual relations with their own relatives. They got drunk at the Lord's table and abused the Lord's table. They had problems with spiritual gifts. Problems with the resurrection. They had every problem that there is in a church. They're in the wilderness. Do you think they had life abundant? You think you had joy unspeakable? No, you don't get that in the wilderness. And you don't get rest, either. Jesus said, I come in that you might have life, and have life more abundant. Many Christians might have life, but they don't have abundant life. They might have a certain amount of joy, but not joy unspeakable. And so we need to get them, Christians, from the wilderness Canaan. The biggest problem is right here. I'll explain to you. That's Egypt. That's the Red Sea. This is the wilderness. This is the Jordan. That's Canaan. Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Every song you ever sang about crossing over Jordan and being in heaven is wrong. Okay? (laughs) When I get over this river, no, that's not it. It's not heaven. When they got there, they had to fight 30 kings in seven years. They had kings to fight. You know, that's not heaven. You're not going to be fighting anybody in heaven. Canaan is a picture of the blessing and the bounty and the fullness of God. It's that place of blessing and bounty and fullness, of abundant life, of a joyful life. It's a place of rest where Christians ought to be. But they're not. This is the problem right here. This Jordan River represents appropriation, appropriating what God said. Israel didn't go in because of unbelief. Christians don't go in because of unbelief. They don't believe what God said. But a lot of times they're ignorant of what God said. Because they don't know any of these truths, these positional truths to believe in. And unless you do You'll never be happy in the Christian life. I want to stop here and just explain the difference between your condition and your position. Who wants to volunteer? (laughs) Scott, is your condition good? Huh? I didn't ask about your position. Weren't you in my class? (laughs) Your condition is the way you are now, walking through this life. You sin, you mess up, you blow it, you do things wrong. Your condition is variable. One day you do good, another day you do bad, you're sinning all over the place. You might do ten stupid things before breakfast. Twelve sinful things before lunch, and who knows what you're doing by the time night comes. But your condition is variable. Now, That's contrasted to your position, which is completely different. Your position in Christ is absolutely perfect. From the moment you get saved, you have a perfect position in Christ. It never changes. It's not variable. It's a positional truth. God looks down and sees you as absolutely perfect. He doesn't see you in all your sin. Now I'm telling you all this because a lot of Christians go through life looking at their condition instead of their position, and I guarantee you will never be happy looking at your condition instead of your position. I had a guy one time that used to go to the men's fellowship, and every time he prayed it, I thought he was going to fall into hell. He must have thought he was the worst guy in the world, and he sounded like that every time that he prayed. And he was obviously looking at his condition all the time, And I went up to him and I said, you know what, you need to come to my class. I think there's something I can teach you. And in that class we taught the difference between your condition and your position. I've never heard him pray like that again. I think he got his eyes off his condition and looked at his position. So that's the problem that we have here, is we have to appropriate these truths, um, but we don't know what they are. How can you appropriate them if you don't know what they are? You know, Ephesians 6 says take on you the whole armor of God, right? The sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. It talks about the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. The breastplate of uh, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, your loins girded about with truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I only care about the first two. The sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. Now when Satan comes around, you need the sword of the Spirit. When Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him, every time he answered him with the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. He had a sword. He could fight because he had the sword, right? But what if you don't know anything about the Bible? What if you never studied? You never memorized a verse? You barely go to church? and you don't know anything about the Bible, and the devil comes around, how are you going to fight him with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, when you don't know anything about the Word of God? I mean, that makes sense. You can't get your little pen knife out. Come on, Satan. Okay, enough of that. Now I want to talk about the shield of faith. The shield of faith is to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. And by the way, the enemy might be yourself. Because you have more trouble with a guy walking around inside your clothes than with anybody else. I have more trouble with a guy walking around inside my clothes than anybody else. And you can berate yourself and beat yourself up and turn yourself black and blue by looking at your condition and saying, man, you're really sorry and low down. Look what you did. You did this, you did that, and you did the other. You did ten stupid things before breakfast and sinful things before lunch. You're really messed up. And you beat yourself up because you're looking at your condition all the time. And Satan will come around and say, yeah, that's right. Boy, you're really sorry. You know how sinful you are. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you're sinful. Even your Bible says all of sin comes short of the glory of God. And uh, you're corrupt from head to toe. You're sinful. God won't love you. You can't go to heaven. And so what are you going to do when you attack yourself? What are you going to do when Satan attacks you? How can you use the shield of faith if you don't know anything? You don't have a shield. How are you going to protect yourself against the fiery darts that you might even be throwing at yourself or Satan? Now why don't Christians believe God the way that he wants to? Why don't they appropriate the truths of God. One is they don't know him, Right? Secondly, they don't get into Canaan because they're looking at their condition all the time and not their position. The place of abundant living and joyful living of blessing and bounty and fullness of God. They'll never get in there looking at their condition. They won't even feel Qualified to go in there. The only way you can get in there is to understand your position. But if you never looked at the Bible and you don't know any of these positional truths, how can you use them as a shield of faith? Example, we have access to God. That's a positional thing since you're saved. We can go to God anytime we want to. That's a positional thing. Satan would come along and say, oh boy. God doesn't want to be near you. You're sinful. God is holy. He won't allow any sin in His presence. You can't go and talk to God. He's sinful. Don't you remember in the Old Testament? They couldn't even approach the mountain where Moses went up. It was dark and thunder and lightning, and you had to stay away or you would die. Don't you remember the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go in once a year, but nobody else could if they went in there, they would die? Don't you remember the story of Esther when she's going to go in before the king to plead for her people? Now you couldn't just go in before a king and throw yourself down and say some negative thing and tell them some story. and uh, You're taking your life in your hands. You could die. They don't want to hear anything like that. That's why she said, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go in before the king. So People back then didn't have access to God, but we do. So the devil comes along and says, no, God doesn't want to talk to you. You don't have any access to God. Oh, really? Shield of faith. God said, come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need. I'm protected from you, Satan, because of my shield of faith. But if I didn't know I could come boldly, I wouldn't be protected. Now, there's a lot of reasons, I think, why Christians don't believe God. One is because of ignorance. They just don't know what they're supposed to believe in and what they're not. They're trying to get all the time what they've already got, and they don't know it. I've said that a million times. Christians are always trying to get what they've already got, but they don't know that they have it. There are reasons why people can't believe God, have a hard time believing God, because of their past, for example. If you had a really abusive father, let's say, he was stern and he was austere, and you could never do anything right. He had this high bar mentality. You jump five feet, well, you should have jumped six. You jump six feet, well, you should have jumped seven. Seven. You can never jump high enough. He's always raising the bar on you. You never measured up. You were never good enough. He was always critical. You got C's in school? You should have got a B. You got a B? You should have got an A. Dad, I got an A. Uh, You should have taken harder classes. (laughs) No matter what you did, it isn't good enough. I mean, and you didn't feel worthy of anything. What did my father give me for an allowance, Mary? She said, travelers' checks. <laughs> That's what you can feel like with God. He doesn't, he doesn't like me, you know. He said, Danny, you don't have an inferiority complex. You really are inferior, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you get this real stern, austere father, and the problem is transference. You're a Christian and you transfer all that over to God, over to your Heavenly Father. But that's a mistake. Your Heavenly Father isn't anything like your earthly father. But you're thinking, oh God is austere, and He's rigid, and I can never do anything right, and I don't measure up. See, you're looking at your condition, I don't measure up. No matter what I do, it's wrong. But that's wrong, because your Heavenly Father is not like that. Let me say this, by the way, (laughs) I don't know where I'm in my notes. I don't care. (laughs) Sometimes the problem is not the problem. The way that you look at the problem is the problem. Like that's access to God. You say, I don't have access to God. That's not true. You think that's your problem, but the problem is not the problem. The way you look at it is the problem because you do have access to God. See, And so uh, that's true. So people have these feelings, so how do they believe God? How do they believe their Heavenly Father? How are they going to take the jump out of a burning building when they never trusted Him before? He always let them down, and they don't know what to do. And a lot of people are just really insecure. Now, I told my class, if you have emotional problems before you're saved and then you get saved, guess what you are now? You're a Christian with emotional problems. <laughs> I know. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But believe me, there's no zap of heaven. Some of you think you get saved, and there's a zap of heaven, and everything is better right away. That's not true. All your problems go away. No. It's just a path thrown with rose petals. No. The Christian life has a few thorns along the way. There is no zap of heaven. And so they have these emotional problems that keep them from believing and trusting God. Let me put it this way. Let's say you have a really severe wound on your hand. So bad that you can't hold anything without dropping it. Somebody hands you something and the wound is so bad, you drop it. Some people have a wound in their mind. Because of their father, because of other things. And so they go to God and if God wants to hand them anything, they can't hold on to it. Because of the wound that they have. There's a thing that I call the doctrine of ineligibility where people think, I'm not eligible for any good thing. I don't deserve it. I've seen my life, I know how I am. I'm not eligible for any good thing. So God says, come over, believe me, i got all these good things for you. No, I can't. I'm not eligible. I'm not worthy. They're looking at their condition and they're not worthy. And so they can't hold on to the things of God and don't believe God and, and like that. They feel inferior. By the way, Christians that feel inferior, I have a new sister that I never met for 70 years. Didn't know she existed, but we met. She was always kind of self-deprecating, always kind of putting herself down, and she's a a Christian. And uh, sometimes people have these inferiority feelings. I said to her, how can you have inferiority feelings when you're a child of God? When God gave His only Son to die for you, you must be worth something. When the Bible talks about the pearl of great price, everybody thinks the pearl of great price is Christ. I don't think so. We didn't give everything that we had to obtain the the pearl, Christ. Christ gave everything he had to obtain the pearl of great price, which is us. Because we have value and worth. He talks about Israel as a treasure buried in a field. And so his people are a treasure. They're a pearl of great price. They're a treasure. When he comes back at his second coming he says, I'm going to make up my jewels. Considering his people jewels and having value and worth something. You're a child of God, a son of God, an ambassador of the king, a son of the king, a representative of the king. How can you say you have no worth? Uh, That just doesn't doesn't work. I remember when I was a teenager I had a problem with certain verses. By the way, really insecure people I've said this in my class, I've seen them in my class where they read their Bible and every verse that seems to lose their salvation they fixate on because they're insecure. I was like that I'd read this verse and I'd go, uh oh, I don't know if that's going to work. Even if it's not true, it might not even be talking about them. It might be talking about some apostate, some false teacher. It might be dispensationally misapplied. There's all kinds of reasons why. I I kind of got famous in my class for saying, he wasn't talking to you. He's talking to somebody else. But they fix on it, and, and that's it. I remember a verse when I was young where it says, His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I thought, I don't feel like that. His spirit is not making me think I'm a child of God. What's the problem? Doesn't God like me? Doesn't he love me? Am I not saved? Because if I was saved, his spirit would tell my spirit that I'm a child of God. But I don't feel like that. It was years later that I realized there's two spirits there. There's the spirit of God and there's your human spirit. And they're not agreeing. That's why you don't feel like that. Until your spirit and God's spirit are saying the same thing then you have problems with that. And I had problems with that until I kind of figured that out. Now I want to tell you something about Christians. They try too much but they shouldn't. Somebody said to me one time Stop trying and start trusting. That doesn't sound right. Stop trying, start trusting. What am I not supposed to try? I'm a Christian, but I'm not supposed to try. No, stop trying and start trusting. The just shall live by faith. Not by trying, not by figuring, but by believing what God has said. Trust God for what He said. You don't have to try. Christians are always trying for things that they already have and don't know it. You know, there are people trying to get acceptance with God. Why are you trying to get acceptance with God? Ephesians says we're accepted in the Beloved. We're already accepted. We don't have to strive and work and earn and merit favor with God. There's people, they climb 10,000 steps on their bloody knees to try to get favor with God. There's asceticism where they deny themselves and don't eat and they're starved. There's cults of filth where the dirtier they are the holier they are. Guys that sit on top of poles hundreds of feet high for Days and days and days at a time. They try to do all kinds of things to get accepted by God, but we're already accepted and they just don't know it. One thing that kind of keeps you out is sin. You know, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. You you can't have joy and all that, you know, with a lot of sin, but everybody's going to sin. God knows that. But all of our sins were forgiven. God said he took all of our sin and cast them behind his back. He's buried them in the deepest sea. He's separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. He's nailed them to the cross. He's wiped them out. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Your sins are forgiven, all of them, past, present, and future. Now let me tell you something. God saw all of your sin when He decided to save you. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but Jesus, while we were yet sinners, died for us. What sins? The sins we already did? No. He saw every sin you will ever commit. He's seen sins that you haven't done yet. He saw them all. He sees them all. And He forgave you anyway. Anyway. Everything with God is the eternal now, the eternal present. He sees it all at once. Now you watch a parade, a rose parade, five miles long. You see the beginning of the parade. You see the middle of the parade. You see the end of the parade. That's not how God is. God sees the whole parade at once. He sees it all. He saw your whole life. And he forgave you anyway. And He died for you with His vicarious substitutionary death. He died for you, the just for the unjust, in our place and in our stead. He died for us. Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And then it says, God looked down on the travail of his soul and was satisfied. The law of God was satisfied because of Jesus. We have what's called uh, imputed righteousness. All the righteousness of Christ has been transferred to our account. We had a sin account. You're in debt. You can never get out of it. You can't pay it. But all the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. If you look in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted or imputed or credited to him for righteousness. The sin debt is paid. Our sin debt is paid because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. He wrote paid in full in his own blood. So that's the positive side of imputation. The negative side is what David said. David described the man who said blessed is the man whose sins are covered, whose iniquities are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. sin. So on the positive side, you're credited righteousness. On the negative side, you're not charged with sin. Now, he paid for your sin. And I want to tell you this. I want everybody to hear this. It doesn't agree with the justice of God to punish one sin two times. He's not going to punish Christ and then punish you. And by the way, he saw all of your sins and he gave you salvation anyway. How are you going to lose it? Is he going to take it away? He just wouldn't have given it to you in the first place. He's not going to give it to you and then take it away. And by the way, the devil comes around and says, you don't have life, you don't have everlasting life. Really? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How long is everlasting, Satan, my shield of faith? The wages to the sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. How long is eternity, Satan? I've got eternal life. I've got everlasting life. How are you saying I'm going to lose life? I mean, he's kind of tricky. He's, oh, well, yeah, sure. When you get to heaven, you'll have eternal life. Well, you're never going to make it. You're all messed up. Look at your condition. Look what you do. Look at the ten stupid things you did. You're never going to get to heaven. You're never going to get eternal life because you're never going to make it to heaven in the first place to get it. Boy, he's tricky. So you've got your shield of faith. You say, Satan, the Bible says, he that hath the Son hath life. Right now. It's a present possession. You don't get it later. It's not something for the sweet by and by. It's something for the nasty now and now. It's an eternal present. You have it now and you have it forever. And you can't lose it. And so that's the shield of faith and that's what, that's what people need. Uh, So Christians need to get into to Canaan, but they have a lot of reasons why they don't. But they need to learn to appropriate what God says, and they won't have any trouble. Israel had a rest, didn't make it. There's an eternal rest, but this rest that's for us now is a place where we can go and rest. We don't have to earn merit, strive to get God's acceptance, to get God's love, to get the forgiveness of sin. We don't have to do anything. We can sit back and rest. It's called a rest. And that word means a lot to me. And if you've been really tired, worn out, you know what it means to have a rest. A rest from all your labors. I don't have to climb any steps. I don't try to have to be accepted of God. The Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It says we're not appointed unto wrath. I don't need to worry about any of that because all my sins have been uh, covered and forgiven. We have an advocate and an intercessor. If any man sin, he has an advocate with a father. We have an intercessor. That's like a lawyer. Jesus Christ is the Perry Mason of the universe. He's the defense lawyer of the universe, and he never loses a case. Yeah. I never saw a Perry Mason lose a case. Now, Revelation 12 says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's standing in the courts and look at that sorry again. He did this and he did that and he did the other and 10 stupid things before breakfast and 12 but like that. He's a sorry individual. You know how sinful he is. But we have a lawyer, an advocate, an intercessor, that's pleading our case. We don't need to worry about it. In fact, all he has to do is hold up his blood-stained hands, and the case is closed. The case is over. And he doesn't realize that not only is Jesus, God, our advocate, our lawyer, but he's also the judge. (laughs) How are you going to win this? You brought your briefcase but you forgot to bring a case. <laughs> it's all over, you know? You can't pluck me out of my father's hand. I used to play this game with my kids where I put a quarter in my hand and they try to get it but they couldn't cuz I'm too strong. Well, Jesus said that no man can pluck you out of my father's hand. And then he talked about his hand. There are two hands there. Two omnipotent hands holding you. And nobody can pluck you out of his hand because they're not strong enough. Now if the devil thinks he can wrestle God or something, I mean he's mighty but God is almighty. If you're going to try to wrestle God you better bring a sack lunch because you're going to be there a long time. And then God gets tired of you he'll just go and it's all over. I mean you're done. You know? Jesus said him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Saying You might think he loves you and all that, but you're going to mess up until he'll cast you out. So you need the shield of faith. He said he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So anyway, I need to cut off this baloney so I want to say this. (laughs) You'll never Have life abundant and joy unspeakable and full of glory and all that by looking at your condition. You have to look at your position. And you have to stop trying and start trusting. That's the only way you're going to be happy. There were times in life when life was beating me up. I thought life was a burden. Life was a chore. You backslide, you're so far down, that you think you'll never get up. How do I get up and brush myself off and go on? I listened to Christian music for a while. That helped. I read Puritan things. That helped a little. But when I understood positional truth and looked at my position instead of my condition, that solved the whole problem. No matter what I did, my sins were forgiven. And I don't have to lay in the mud. I can get up and I can go on that's the only way. I think it's the secret of the Christian life. I said that to Brandon. I said, I don't think it's a secret because it's in the Bible, but it seems like people don't know that. I think that's the whole secret to the Christian life, is understanding your position and looking at your position instead of your condition. Okay, I better close. So what do I want from you? The boy jumped because he trusted his father and he was safe. I want you to take a jump and trust your father. Believe him. Believe the things that he says. And go ahead and take the jump. It's not a leap into the dark, it's a leap into the light. And that's the only way you're going to be happy and joyful in the Christian life. Let's pray.